So we are going to dive right into our sermon series that we've been going over the last few weeks. And uh, some of you are aware of our topic today. So I want to thank you all for coming to church today. And I look forward to seeing you next week. The Lord bless you. So has anyone found themselves in the last week or last little while saying to themselves, okay, I have to love that neighbor? Is that just me? Am I the only person who's gone through the week reminding myself, okay, I have to love that neighbor, I have to love that neighbor, I have to love that neighbor? Uh, We all struggle to deal with some people. I mean, that's, that's human nature. They're just some people that, for whatever reason, we struggle to get on with. And we know that we're supposed to extend grace. I mean, after all, that's what Larry spoke about last week. We're forgiven, so therefore we should know how to forgive. We've received this incredible grace. It's what we've just remembered at the communion table. So we know we're supposed to extend grace. But how do we do that? You know, yesterday, as we were heading off to my son's soccer game, uh, I was reminded by a text message that, hey, don't forget, there's going to be a protest downtown, uh, so try and avoid the traffic. And we had to get to North Vancouver uh, on the other side of Stanley Park. So I was like, okay, well, I'll avoid downtown, and I'll just go all the way up 176, hop onto Highway 1, and go through, and it'll be fine. So we went up 176, no worries. And we joined Highway 1 at the top of 176, slap bang in the middle of a trucker freedom convoy protest. We were involuntarily part of the protest. <laughs> now, I'd be lying to you if I, didn't, if I said I didn't occasionally honk my horn, just because it was fun, actually. Uh, and we were driving in Cindy's little Suzuki, and I didn't want any big trucks running us off the road, you know, so it was... But it just... I looked at that, and and there were counter-protests going on, and I thought, could you imagine getting the people in that convoy to sit down and share a meal with the people that were stopping them and protesting against them and trying to say, hey, in Christ, we need to learn to love one another. Man, I would not want to be the mediator between those two. But we all do that. And so over the last few weeks, that's the series we've been looking at. How do we love that neighbor. And by that neighbor, we're not trying to be offensive or derogatory. It's an indictment on us that there are people we struggle to love because of all sorts of reasons. And so we've looked at things like racism. We've looked at how to engage with different views. And today we are talking about how do we love the members of the LGBTQ community? How do we love those people, those who are different to us, those who view the world differently to us? So this morning, I I want to begin with three foundational statements. These are not my three points. This isn't where I'm going, but I want to start on a foundation. And I know that perhaps there are some of you who are in the congregation this morning who knew and you heard, hey, Brian's going to be talking about that. I'm going to make sure I'm there. I know that there are some people joining us online this morning who've heard this is the topic and they're really interested to hear what I say. And so I'm glad you're here joining us online. But I need to begin with three foundational statements this morning before we consider how do we love that neighbor. The first statement is simply this, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Now today I'm primarily speaking to the congregation of White Rock Baptist Church, but as I've just said, I'm aware there are guests joining us, either in person or online. And some of those guests are very much a part of the LGBTQ community, or at least would call themselves allies of the LGBT community. And so to you, I want to express my apologies first. I'm sorry that the churches that I have been a part of have not historically made room for you as you journey towards Christ. I'm sorry that I've gotten so hung up on doctrine 
that I have not stopped to listen to your story or get to know you, the person. I'm sorry that you have not found a place where you can make sense of your life in relation to God. I'm sorry that I have wanted you to change first so as to make me more comfortable and not have my beliefs and practices challenged. I'm sorry that I've chosen to arrogantly believe that what I believe is the only right and true way to do life or to be a Christian. I'm sorry that all too often I've chosen to think of you with judgment, doubt, and exclusion rather than with humility, grace, and love. The former approach is the way of the Pharisee, while the latter was the example of Christ. And I'm sorry that all too often I have preached Christ, yet chosen to act like a Pharisee. While I cannot say that I'm over my Pharisaical ways, I do want to live more like Christ. And I want to engage with you as a fellow human, created in the image of God. And as I say sorry, I want to expressly say, I'm sorry for causing hurt in your life. And I can only hope that myself and us as a church, as we journey through this series of loving that neighbor, I can only hope that you would find a place that allows you to discover God through Christ, walking in the Holy Spirit, finding a place where all people are given freedom, walking in Christ, allowing God to do what God wants to do in God's own time. I'm sorry. The second foundational statement I want to make is that in any church, in any body of people, in any group, there is always a continuum. And by continuum, I mean a line from those who on one side would say no. And in fact, it doesn't matter what the topic is. They're no, they're against, no thank you. All the way through to those who would say yes. We're all for, we're all about And in every group, in every place, there is a continuum. And just like any topic in our church, when we talk about LGBTQ and this topic under discussion, there would be those on one side who would say, absolutely not. No, there is no place. There is no room. We cannot allow. We cannot tolerate all the way through to those in the same congregation who would say absolutely yes. We should be wide open. There should be no exclusion. There should be no rules. There should be no hindrance. And those two extremes in any congregation are generally pretty small. And then in the middle of that continuum are a very large group of people who would say, you know what, either I'm, I'm not really sure, but I'm not, I'm not kind of overly emphasized or, or overly uh, prepared to land on either side. I'm kind of a little bit unsure. Uh, or maybe they're part of those who would say, well, I'm not really involved in the issue. It's, it doesn't really affect me or my life, and so I don't really mind. It's not that they're saying I don't care, and I, I really don't mind, and I'm happy to just go with the flow of whatever we decide. There are those in that middle continuum who would say, I want to do the right thing, but I don't know what the right thing is. And so I want to listen to both sides to try and make up my mind, but I don't want to get to one of those extremes. And of course, in a continuum, there are those who have conviction, but they're happy to let others be. And so at White Rock Baptist Church, as we talk about this topic... We know that for some, it's going to be a non-issue. For others, it's going to be highly volatile. And for others, it's going to be deeply personal and emotional. But that doesn't mean we should not talk about it. 
In fact, I mentioned Christina Cleveland's book a couple of weeks ago, Disunity in Christ. And often in churches, we have those right Christians versus wrong Christians, or we have an in-group versus out-group. And so in church, we generally accept certain beliefs and values, and, and these are the unspoken rules. And there are other things we don't really talk about, because if we talk about those, well, then we might cause division. And the problem is, by not talking about it, we cause hurt. And we still cause exclusion. And so in this church, there is a continuum. And that's okay. And then my third foundational statement is simply this. This issue, and I deliberately do it in air quotes, this issue is not out there. This is not something that is simply happening in downtown Vancouver and as long as we don't go to any pride days, you know, it's not part of our lives. Not at all. This is very much a part of our life. And very much a part of the congregation of White Rock Baptist Church. A number of families of White Rock Baptist Church have family members who are members of this community. And therefore, this issue, this discussion, this point is part of life. You know, I joked about our youth ministry. For many of our teenagers, this is the norm. This is part of their school day. This is part of their life. In fact, some of our teenagers are wondering why we're we even talking about this. It, it's, it's, it's just part of life. It's right here. And pray for our youth pastor as she navigates that whole spectrum in a Friday night. So with those three foundational statements made... How do we begin with this subject today? This series, as I said a moment ago, is designed for us as White Rock Baptist Church to think about how do we love people, even those people that we might struggle to love. How do we love? And I know that even as I speak about this, I'm still learning, I, I, I still struggle. I still wrestle, and I know that for some, it might even be offensive that I'm saying some of what I'm saying, which is, of course, not my intention. My desire, my goal is to say, how do we love one another? See, I think some of us might, when we talk about this topic, have the wrong view of God. Our view of God is not entirely correct. Perhaps you grew up, like me, uh, in a church where homosexuality was declared to be an outright sin. So there was no discussion on the matter. And of course, any part of that LGBTQ spectrum was just simply sin. We do not talk about it. And perhaps you went along with that church because you knew that to bring any statement that might be contrary to that, you would be branded a heretic and you would be kicked out to church. And no one wants to be part of the out group when they're already part of an in group. And maybe you were taught that God hates sin. And there is no sin more heinous than the sin of homosexuality. And somewhere in the process, we began to mistakenly say that not only does God hate sin... God hates those people, too. We believe God hated them because they were a threat to the moral decency that we had so built up. We chose to label and exclude them rather than get to know them and hear their stories. But can I say this? God is not homophobic. God is not homophobic. Homophobia is defined as an unreasonable fear of, or an opposition to, or an extreme dislike of homosexual people and homosexuality. Let me first say this, or let me say this, I should say. I'm not clear on a lot of things. As I said, I'm learning. But I am clear that God is not like that. God loves all people. Because God created all people. Jesus set an example of loving people. And you and I, no matter how we might land on that topic, and that's some of what we'll talk about next week, regardless of our position, we're still called to love. 
We're called to love all people who are wrestling with their place in the world, regardless of that, what that might be, without judgment and condemnation. You know, the author Andrew Myron in his book, Us Vs. Us, which is a great book, by the way, says that unless you have been sexually attracted to someone of the same sex, you can never fully grasp, as a heterosexual person, what that actually means. And I would say that that quote falls short of the entire LGBTQ spectrum. If you've never been a part of that, if you've never wrestled with that, then you don't know what it's like. And so to try and give these flippant little terms and expressions and statements without journeying, well, that's just arrogance. And so while I believe that, I believe that we can get clarity. And we can hear God's heart for people. And we can hear God's heart for family, for friends, for community, regardless of where they might land. And especially if they are a part of the LGBTQ community. We've been off course for too long. And it's time for us to change. See, God is not the real challenge in this matter. It's the people who claim to follow God that are the challenge. And God continues to get a bad rap in the world because of his followers. Let's see if you and I can change this in our community. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'm going to read from John chapter 4. A well-known passage of Scripture. Uh, it, I'm going to break it up into four parts. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. Just a little bit of backstory so it makes a bit of sense. Uh, Jesus has been down in Judea. And he is around Jerusalem, and now he's heading back north toward the region of Galilee, where he's from. And as he goes uh, from Jerusalem up to Galilee, the only way to get there is to either go through Samaria or around Samaria. Now, most Jews in that day and age would have chosen to go around Samaria, and we'll discuss that in a moment. Jesus decides, you know what, I'm going to walk right through where people like me don't normally go through, or at least where no good Jew would go. Jesus decides, I'm going through, and not only am I going through, I'm stopping in a little town called Sychar. And he's there around about noon, he's tired, and he's thirsty. And so he sits down next to a well. And we pick up the story in verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Because his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So let me pause there for a moment. It's almost like this woman, as Jesus speaks to her, kind of stops and goes, Excuse me, hold on. There are a lot of reasons why you shouldn't be talking to me right now. And in fact, I'm kind of thrown out. How is it that you, a Jew, can speak to me, a Samaritan? Samaritans were considered half-breeds and looked down upon by the Jewish people. In fact, Samaritans were part of a curse. Most Jewish men were very thankful that they were not Samaritan. I mean, they were also pretty thankful that they weren't women, but that's a different story for a different day. And so Jewish men had a particular view. And so this woman picks that up. I'm a Samaritan. What are you doing talking to me? Not only am I a Samaritan, I'm a woman. Nobody, you know, no Jewish man's going to talk to me. You don't have an interaction. But Jesus doesn't flinch. He doesn't hesitate. In fact, if you keep reading the next few verses, it's not just about him being thirsty. He's interested in her. He's interested in her heart and in her story. And I think sometimes we forget, we kind of have this view that because Jesus is God, and our minds struggle with that, we think that Jesus just knows everything about everyone all the time. That's not true. The way Jesus discovered things was because the Holy Spirit gave him insight. And the Holy Spirit does that regularly, and in fact, he does it here later on. But, but as I read this, I believe, I have no doubt, Jesus was sitting down at a well, 
And he sort of thought to himself, wait a minute, why is a woman coming out here at noon to draw water and alone? Women normally come together in the morning when it's cool and it's a communal thing. Jesus picks up, there's, there's a story here. Jesus wants to know what is the story. And yet she gets confused because normally in her mind, people like her have been categorized by people like Jesus. And there are two categories in her mind. I'm a Samaritan and I'm a woman. But this is what we take away from the story right here. If you're taking notes this morning, you can write this one big. God doesn't categorize people. God doesn't categorize people. Jesus doesn't put you and me into a category. Unfortunately, we in the church love categorizing people. It's all about the categories you fit in. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I touched on racism, and, and unfortunately, the history of the church and, and really the history of the world uh, is one rife with racism and categorization. But, but you know, even a couple of years ago, the church categorized people about whether you danced or not. It seems absurd, but I know Christian men and women today who are proud of the fact that at their wedding, there was no dancing. I'm like, how do you celebrate something with not dancing? But, but, but they did, they categorized it because only sinners danced. You know, and so the church categorizes. We categorize people who drink, people who smoke, people who are divorced, young people who get pregnant out of wedlock, you know, people who, who use marijuana, all these kind of things. And we, and we have this list that just goes on and on. And you know, if you're part of that, you're the out group because we here, we don't. Until our pastor uses a crazy illustration in a liquor store and it, it stretches us. But that's what we do. We, we categorize. The very place where people are supposed to find grace and community as they try and find Christ, is the very same place that categorizes them and excludes them. Until you change and fit to our category, you cannot come in. That's what we say. You know, I once heard the testimony of a teenage girl who had joined a Satanist group. And when asked, why did you become a Satanist? She said simply, whoever loves me can have my soul. And it was an indictment to the fact that the church in her area chose not to love, chose not to accept, chose to exclude. And she found friendship and love in a group of Satanists. The problem is we don't want to love those who don't conform to our belief and our practice of Christianity. And I know some of you might be afraid. Might be afraid of what might happen if we love those who are different to us. Jesus doesn't ask you to change your belief. Jesus doesn't ask you to change your position. All Jesus asks you to do is change your heart towards the other and to love. I know I've shared this story many years ago, but it bears repeating. I was involved in a church in Cape Town as a student, uh, and the church finally called a new pastor. And as that new pastor joined, one of his friends in the community wanted to come and support him in his first day uh, being inducted into the church and this woman had a ministry to a number of prostitutes in that area and so she convinced a few prostitutes to join her to go to church I mean, can you imagine how scary that must be for a prostitute to walk into a, a little conservative baptist church yet these prostitutes chose to come with their friend because of love and relationship they dared to think maybe we'll find life, maybe we'll find something. They came into church that morning, and after the service, one of the elders of the church went to the pastor and said, we better be careful that we don't have them coming into the church because they might disrupt the church. You, you, that's why you're there, to reach those who don't know Christ. We better not allow them in because they might disrupt us. You know, let's get back to the story in the book of John. John chapter 4, reading from verse 10 onwards. Jesus answered her, um, from verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, 
you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as, also, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, of course, as we read this and as we've engaged with this, we know this is not about actual water. This is a metaphor. Jesus is saying to this woman, you know what, you're, you're thirsty. But you're not just physically thirsty. You're spiritually thirsty. You're looking for something. And that something is available. There's something so much greater than this physical water. And I love that metaphor, that illustration of water. You know, the human body can go for weeks without food. We, we can survive for weeks without food. But the average human could only go three, maybe four days without water. Without water, you and I would die. This is why we know what it is to thirst. And we know that when we thirst, we need to quench it. And so this woman understands that and she says, well, I don't want to be thirsty. I, I, I don't want to have to come. And in her mind again, it's the physical water. And Jesus says to her and likens his presence to her to that of being like water. And this that he offers her, the spiritual truth. And she will never thirst again. So let's, let's read again from verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. And I'm like, Wow, Jesus. I thought you were all about love and grace, and you just slapped this woman with some truth. You know, that sounds more like a Pharisee. You just listed everything that's wrong in this woman's life. You've been married five times. You can't keep a husband. And so now you've chosen to shack up with some guy. What kind of person are you? You know, but that's not Jesus' style. Jesus doesn't start quoting Leviticus. He doesn't start quoting law. He, he quotes grace. Now, I said I'm talking to church people this morning. to White Rock Baptist Church. So I'm assuming that many of you know the story of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Now, don't shout out the answer, but in that story, in John chapter 8, when Jesus is kind of, the Pharisees and the rulers, they bring a woman who's just been caught in adultery, and they bring her to Jesus, and they ask her, hey, should we stone her? Because that's what the law says. What should we do? And Jesus kind of stoops and draws in the sand a little bit, and they keep pressing him, and Jesus steps up and goes, okay, uh, whoever has no sin can cast the first stone. And everyone kind of eventually drops the stones and walks away. Now that story, what was Jesus' closing comment to the woman caught in adultery? Don't shout it out. I'm pretty sure most of you are going, Jesus said, go and sin no more. And you're absolutely right. But do you know how frustrated and how tiring it is to hear people quote that story and they go, you see, Jesus told her she mustn't sin. So it's my job to tell everyone, go and sin no more. But that's not actually Jesus' final comments to her. It's a part of Jesus' closing comments. We read in John chapter 8, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said then neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Neither do I condemn you. 
You know, we hop onto his words, go and sin no more, but gloss over the neither do I condemn you. You know, the, the greatest verse we all know so well, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And that's why we gather around the table, this gift of grace, this eternal life for those that God loves. And we forget verse 17, the very next verse. For God did not send his Son to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So why is it that we're so busy in the job of condemnation? We're known for our condemnation. We're known for those who we oppose. Yet that was never Jesus' example. Because God doesn't categorize people. Jesus' conversation with the woman here is a conversation that began with love and acceptance. And that should, see us, should show us that God is all about compassionate conversations. You know, according to research conducted by the Marin Foundation, people in the LGBTQ community are much less concerned about our theology than they are with how they have been and continue to be treated by Christians in the church. If you think about it, it makes sense. When are we most compassionate? When we can relate to another person's story. When we understand what they're going through. And this is why we struggle, because we've chosen not to listen to the story. We've chosen not to get to know the individual. You know, it's so important that we see here, the real issue is not homosexuality. The real issue is not any of the letters in the LGBTQ uh, string of letters. It's all about sexual orientation. And when I speak about sexual orientation, I mean for every human on the planet. Sexual orientation and sexual identity affects every one of us in one way or another. God has given us this incredible gift known as sex and intimacy. We have this experience and we all long for this experience in one way or another. And all of humanity has messed that up in some way. And so we who are Christians need to get off our high horses thinking that we have the, 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 the only view. And because we're heterosexual Christians, we have the sole license on how it's supposed to go. You know, the Bible's clear. If you've ever lusted with your eyes, if you've ever entertained lustful thoughts, you're guilty of violating God's word. So don't dare be smug about it as we look at somebody who sins differently to us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I love this quote by Deb Hirsch. Acknowledging our own broken sexuality enables us to identify with the sexually broken humanity. We must see heterosexuals as no less broken and in need of salvation than homosexuals, or I would say anybody else. We are all together in the human experience of life and trying to live out the reality of the kingdom. Every human being on the planet is in some way broken. Everybody's orientation is disoriented. All of us are on a journey toward wholeness. Not one of us is excluded. So let's get back to the question, how... Do we love that neighbor? You know, Billy Graham once attended a rally in support of Bill Clinton. And this was after the, the sex scandal that had rocked Bill Clinton's presidency. And a reporter kind of asked him and said, wait, you're Billy Graham. You know, you, you preach about this kind of stuff. How is it that you're here supporting someone like uh, Bill Clinton? Billy Graham said, it is the Holy Spirit's job to convict, it is God's job to judge, and my job to love. Are we focused on our job? Now, I know some of you this morning might kind of go, oh, Brian, why are, we, why are we even addressing this topic? It's just, man, this feels awkward, this feels difficult, why are we doing this? I mentioned a few weeks ago that we as White Rock Baptist Church are a part of a broader body of churches known as the Canadian Baptists of Western Canada. 
And this is why Larry was here last week for our ordination service as our regional minister uh, ministering to all of our churches. In this year's assembly, the churches are going to be called to vote on a couple of motions that touch on this topic. And just like White Rock Baptist Church has a continuum of yes through to no or no through to yes, however you want to see it, so too does the Canadian Baptist of Western Canada. There are churches within the Canadian Baptist's uh, body who welcome into membership members of the LGBT community. And there are churches within the Canadian Baptists of Western Canada who say that anybody part of that community may not come to church. Well, they won't say it quite that far, but they're definitely not accepting into membership. And so we have a spectrum. Now, ordinarily, we would hear from a pretty uh, conservative viewpoint or a pretty rigid viewpoint, and, and I'm going to touch on that next week as to why we would hear from that. But doesn't it make sense, if I keep talking about listening to the stories, doesn't it make sense to hear from a brother or sister church that does something a bit different to us as to why they do that? We have a church just down the road from us that, in fact, White Rock Baptist Church was involved in the formation of, and it's the church at South Point. Uh, many of you know that name many years ago from, I think, White Rock Baptist, Berea, and... Um, Richmond, I've gone. Broadmoor, thank you. Those three churches partnered together in birthing uh, the church at South Point. And so I've got a testimony this morning from their pastor, Ann Smith, uh, just sharing why and how they've come to where they've landed on welcoming uh, LGBT members into membership at their church. Now, I know some of you uh, will, at this point, tense up. Brian, does that mean we're going there? Does, does that mean we're going to do this? That's not what we're saying right now. Right now, we're talking about how do we love? How do we love? That's the starting point. And that's what I want you to listen to in this testimony as Anne shares with us. And then I'm going to close off just after that. Can we play that video of Anne Smith, please? The church at South Point. And I'm here to tell you my story. I went to an evangelical um, liberal arts Christian university in the States. And after I graduated, I learned that one of my fellow students had jumped in front of a train and killed himself because he didn't know how to reconcile being both Christian and gay. And in that moment, my heart shifted from homosexuality is wrong to being conflicted and confused. And for the next 25 years, I dodged the question, what do I believe about same-sex attraction and relationships? I went to seminary. I pastored a church in Manila. I moved to England. I trained as a spiritual director and taught spirituality courses. I then became a college campus minister. And during all those years, because the mostly LGBTQ Christians are closeted, I, ha I could avoid that question. But in 2011, I was called to be the pastor of this little church in White Rock called the Church at South Point, and I was forced once and for all to figure out what I believed. When I was candidating for the pastoral position at South Point, the search committee told me that one of their founding members had come out as gay, had married, and now they were both in the church. One was a member, one wasn't. And the leadership was wrestling with this question of what to do in regards with their membership. And if I'm honest, my response to that search committee was cowardly. I told them, it would be really lovely if you figured out what you wanted before I get there. I was still dodging that question. But the church's questions weren't answered by the time I got there. Rather, the questions and the conflict and the confusion had deepened, and I was, by default, responsible for walking a conflicted and confused church through a process while being myself conflicted and confused. We wrestled with it for quite some time until one day I asked the leadership team, did you ever invite them to one of your meetings to hear their story? And the answer was no. So we invited them 
into a leadership team meeting just to listen. And we heard the story of a, Abby, of a man who grew up the son of a religious leader who confessed his orientation to his parents at the age of 13, and then for many, many, many years was sent around the country to one reparative therapy program to another. None of them, none of them worked. After years of this and all the heartache that went along that journey, he sensed the Spirit of God saying to him, when will you see, when will you believe that this does not have the power to come between us? Sensing God's loving care, he searched for a safe place to be gay and Christian and ended up with the Gay Christian Network, and then that is where he met his husband. As he shared his story, we all wept together. It felt like a holy moment. We witnessed their clear love of God and their love for each other, but surprisingly also their love of us as their church, we who had put them on the margins, and yet they were extending us grace and patience. The fruit of the Spirit was heavily upon their lives. So this meeting was this kind of turning point for our leadership team, where we began this move away from a position of exclusion. Moving from talking about the gay couple to talking with them was the first step of our own shift, but there were other watershed moments, watershed conversations along the way. And I'd like to name a few for you. We began to wrestle and question with this presupposition that we, as a church leadership team, had this moral responsibility to stand in judgment over them and define whether they were right or wrong and in God's will or not. Along the way, we began to see that they didn't need, or we didn't need to be their judge and jury. We needed to be their family. We began to grasp the gift in Jesus' commandment, do not judge, and began respecting their soul freedom to discern for themselves God's will for their life and the capacity of the Holy Spirit to convict them of their sin if that was indeed needed. We realized that this couple would be a part of God's family banquet table in heaven, so why would we keep them from being a part of our family banquet table here on earth? After all, don't we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? And we realized what was true all along, that they already were a part of us, already part of our Christian family. Why would we withhold membership from them? And these realizations really moved us from a rational paradigm of right and wrong to a more relational paradigm of inclusion and exclusion, which we noticed was at the heart of Jesus's ministry. Now, when it finally came time to make a decision regarding the membership, we made space for a listening circle in our community. We put the Christ candle in the middle, we asked everybody to sit in a circle, and we shared our deep hope and our deep fear around the decision. We didn't debate at this point or hold space for conversation. We just listened as an act of discernment, and then we had communion. And as we did this, it became clear that we as a community were of one heart and one mind, that we were ready and felt called to welcome them both into membership. And so we did. Mirroring the wideness of Christ's invitation, come, all you who are thirsty, we now welcome people of diverse sexual orientations and gender identities to join us in worship, connection, and care. Having ourselves experienced the radical hospitality of God's grace, we welcome people into membership based on their orientation towards Christ, regardless of their sexual orientation and gender identity. And having experienced the nurturing safety of God's family, we seek to be a safe place for all families, regardless of sexual orientation and gender. We realize that faithful people can and will come to different conclusions. And some of you here have a different conclusions yourself. And we honor the soul freedom of one another. And we believe that community can include diverse understandings and be whole. We choose to value empathy over agreement and certainty and seek to find unity in the midst of our diversity. So that is our story, and thank you for listening. You may have picked up two terms, actually probably a lot of terms, and I think some of you might feel like, 
whoa, there was so much in there, I, I need to watch that again. This is online, and you're welcome to go and watch this again afterwards and, and listen to Anne there. Uh, but some of the, the things that jump out for me, one of them is soul freedom. And I'm going to touch on that next week and in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, but the other one was moving from that right first wrong paradigm to a relational paradigm. And isn't that the challenge that we see of Christ in the Gospels? Jesus speaks to people. Jesus enters into relationship. People, people come to find somebody who's listening to them and engaging with them long before issuing points of right versus wrong. Jesus is all about relationship. And so as this woman speaks to Jesus, she starts talking about worship, and you can read the passage. She's still focused on right first wrong, and Jesus goes, it's not about that. And in that point, Jesus opens her eyes to the fact that he is the Messiah. And so she rushes into town and becomes an evangelist. Man, I love the irony right there. I just love the irony. Jesus changes a woman of ill repute, a woman who's been married multiple times, and now she's living in sin, and Jesus says, you know what, you should be my witness. Jesus changes her heart, changes her life, and she runs off into town to tell people all about Jesus. And of course, you and I read that and go, that's doomed to fail. That is not going to work, Jesus. You need to send a Pharisee. They'll sort out the town. No. Let's turn all the way to John chapter 4, the closing verses in verse 39. Many of the Samaritans of that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. How did the lives of these people change for the better forever? It wasn't the argument of the Samaritan woman. She didn't come in there and, and speak logically and argue and try and convert and convince people. No, she simply told her story. Hey, come and see a guy who told me everything I've ever done. You know, and everyone's kind of like, well, okay, that's, that's pretty interesting that you would just shout this out with all of us. I mean, we can argue all day long about people's life choices, about their lifestyle, the way they choose to live. Or we can point them, like that Samaritan woman, to Christ and allow Christ to do the rest. You know, that's part of what Anne said. We feel the pressure uh, inside to condemn and, and the pressure from outside to condone. We feel the need to convince people or to convert people. And once again, compassion wins. Everything would change if we just get that, if we learn to extend grace and love, if we lead with our embrace, and dare I say, not without doctrine. Not that doctrine is not important. We'll touch on that. But let's not lead with that. Let's lead with embrace. Let's lead with love. You know, I began at the communion table from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In that chapter, we're told that we are ambassadors of Christ. You know what an ambassador is? An ambassador is someone who acts on behalf of. If an ambassador goes somewhere, they go with the authority of the person sending them. And it's as though the people who receive them are receiving the sender. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm sending you, everyone in this room, everyone online who calls Jesus Lord, Jesus says, I'm sending you as an ambassador into the world that those who interact with you might experience me. Those who interact with you might experience me. Some of us are so afraid of engaging with the LGBTQ community because we think they're going to change us. They're going to change our doctrine. Do you know that research shows that 92% of the LGBTQ community do not require us to change our theology? But man, they would love for us to change our posture and love for us to change our hearts in the way we interact and the way we engage. 
They want us to do what Jesus commands us to do, to love, to listen. You know, when, when I think about that LGBTQ community, in fact, when I think about all people, they should be flocking into our congregation because this place is known as a place of love. They should be flocking into this place to discover grace and to discover forgiveness. And just like Anne said, it's the job of the Holy Spirit to direct and to convict. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And when he convicts me of something, that's not for me to then jump and turn around and say, hey, everybody, you got to stop doing this. No, that's for me. And as we journey together as brothers and sisters in Christ, loving not condemning, not convicting, but loving. We would find a place where people find a place to belong, where they might experience, regardless of their position on any topic, regardless of their identification, their, their gender expression, regardless of their, uh, who they might call themselves, may they experience the radical and reckless love of Jesus Christ through us. Lord, help us to love that neighbor. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning we've tackled a, a heavy topic and a difficult topic. And we know we've only scratched the surface. Father, when we read through Scripture, I know that some of us are wrestling what does the Bible say? What, what would God have me teach and speak? Jesus, I firmly believe you would begin us in that place of love. Go and be my ambassador and love. And allow you, God, to do what you do. It is you and your Holy Spirit that changes us, that convicts us, that, that conforms us ever more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Father God, forgive us for being uh, sometimes those people who act like bouncers at the doorway, saying you can't come in until you change. Remind us, Jesus, that it's your job to change. It's our job to love, to embrace, to journey alongside one another, always pointing to Christ. Father, may we be known as a church that loves and loves much. God, I know that in that place of love, it will become messy. Broken lives will come in. Those who are different to us will come in. Those who, who experience and do life very differently. And Father, for some of us, that might be uncomfortable. In that place, give us the reminder that we have received much grace and we have received much forgiveness and therefore we can do likewise. Through all of this, may your kingdom come and may you be glorified. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.